Well, good morning, everyone. So in seminary, in preaching class, you are taught that tension is your best friend. Within the first 30 seconds, the first 10 seconds of getting up to speak in front of a group of people that you need to introduce tension. You need to introduce an element of discomfort. And the reason for that is because in every other areas of our lives, tension is a bad thing. You know, if you, if you pull a muscle, if you've got tension in your shoulders or in your back, like that, that is painful. It is a bad thing. Or if there is tension in a relationship that you have with somebody, if, if you're not on good terms with them, it just kind of gets that knot in your stomach going. And, and we hate tension. We hate being uncomfortable in every area of our life. But when it comes to preaching or any kind of public speaking, tension is your friend. Because if you can start out by introducing a tension, if you can make people feel uncomfortable, then they have a reason to keep listening to you beyond the first 30 seconds. It can be a question, it can be a story, whatever it is, you introduce an itch that now needs to be scratched and relieved over the rest of our time together. And so sometimes as a preacher, you have to work really, really hard to find that tension. It can take a while to find where the tension is in the passage and in the people. So sometimes you have to work really, really hard to find the tension. And then sometimes you have passages like this. And what is otherwise a very straightforward and simple passage, Jesus says what might be the most enigmatic, puzzling words he has ever uttered. So in the passage that Mark read for us, Jesus heals a blind and a mute, mute man, which is, that's not out of the ordinary for Jesus. That just seems like another Tuesday morning for Jesus. And then the Pharisees make this dumb and illogical accusation, which again, that's pretty much just par for the course for the Pharisees. Everything is going normal. But in the midst of showing the Pharisees how dumb they are, Jesus says that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So in our passage for this morning, Jesus himself is talking about this unforgivable sin, this unpardonable sin. He is saying that there is a sin which puts you beyond the pale for forgiveness. There is a point of no return in which Christ's offer of forgiveness and salvation is no longer extended to you. And quite honestly, that itself is enough tension for me. I don't feel the need to introduce anymore. That itself makes me uncomfortable and on edge. When you think about those words for long enough, it can make the blood drain from your face and your hair stand on end. In fact, I think if you can hear those words from Jesus and not feel at least a little bit uncomfortable, if you can hear Jesus talk about the unforgivable and the unpardonable sin and, and just brush it off lightly and not feel affected at all, then I think Jesus might be speaking more directly to you than you might even realize. So clearly this is a serious and a heavy topic for us to be considering this morning. And so in light of 
Jesus' scary and serious words, I want us to ask five questions of our text for this morning. So just as a bit of an outline for us this morning, if you are of the note-taking type, if you love the order and the structure and the note-taking, then this is going to be right up your alley. This is for you. And the five questions that I want us to ask and answer this morning regarding this passage and the unforgivable sin. Number one, what it is not. Number two, what it is. Number three, why the Holy Spirit. Number four, have I committed this sin? And number five, how should we respond? I want us to ask those five questions of Jesus' words in our passage. So the first question, what the unforgivable sin is not. Sometimes uh, before getting to work and answering a question directly, you have to clear the field and remove any unnecessary obstacles. So before answering what the unforgivable sin is, let's first clear up what it is not. We're going to go a bit rapid fire here. The unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about here, firstly, it is not mere unbelief. Jesus is not saying that simply not believing in him is unforgivable. Mankind, by our very nature, is unbelieving. We are all born with hearts that are cold and indifferent and rebellious towards Christ. So if mere unbelief were the unforgivable sin, then every single person in the world would be guilty of committing it, and there would be no salvation for anyone. So Jesus is not talking about mere unbelief. Nor is the unpardonable sin some of the more uh, you know, serious or, or, or bigger sins that we often hear about and talk about. It's not murder. Think, think of Moses who killed the Egyptian man or King David who killed Uriah or the Apostle Paul before his conversion. He was on a bloodthirsty mission to kill as many Christians as he possibly could. He was the church's public enemy, number one. But each of these, well, you know, while each of these men were murderers, God forgave them. And you would be hard-pressed to find any other people throughout all of history who God used in a more uh, mighty and beautiful way. So it's not murder, it's not adultery. Again, the reason why David killed Uriah was an attempt to cover up his adultery and God still forgave him. It's it's not suicide. I heard that a lot growing up, that the sin of taking your own life, the breath that God had given you was unforgivable, but... There's no biblical warrant for that conclusion, and the context of this passage certainly has nothing to do with suicide. Suicide, as serious as it is, and as many questions as it brings up, is not what Jesus is talking about here. And lastly, it is not grieving or quenching the spirit. So the letters, in, uh, the letters of Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians talk about how true believers that can grieve or quench the Holy Spirit, showing that it is possible for genuine believers to limit the Spirit's work in their life. And while that quenching or grieving itself is a sin, it is done by genuine believers who have been forgiven by Christ and therefore cannot be considered unpardonable. So those are just some of the misconceptions about what this sin that Jesus is talking about shows what they are not, which leads us to the second question. Number two, what is this unpardonable sin? This is where we have to consider the context in which Jesus said these words. Jesus had just performed a healing miracle 
He was speaking to his disciples and to the crowd and to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees saw the healing power and the work that Jesus had done. And they claimed that Jesus' power to perform that miracle came from Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And I think it is this accusation by the Pharisees that, that is what Jesus is speaking so harshly towards. The Pharisees had seen Christ's ministry that was done in the power of the Spirit and healing and deliverance, and yet they attributed that work to the devil. And it is this rejection, it is this miscreditation that Jesus is condemning and warning us about. Jesus is saying, you have so clearly seen that this work is of the Spirit. The, the fact that this work is of God is beyond question, without a doubt. And you are attributing this work to Satan. So from this context, it appears that the blasphemy of the Spirit and the unforgivable sin involves a knowledgeable, willful, and continued rebellion against the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One pastor and commentator had, had this to say about the Pharisees' actions. He said, this was not a one-time momentary slip or inadvertent mistake in judgment, but a persistent lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act, but a callous attitude. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, but unashamed unbelief. That arises not from ignorance of what is true, but in defiance of what one knows beyond a shadow of a doubt to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. This is not your garden variety sin and unbelief. This is knowing who Jesus is. And knowing what the Holy Spirit is calling you to see and believe about Jesus. And even though you know it to be true, you deny it and give credit to Satan for it. I think we find a, a real life biblical example of this kind of willful hardness of heart that, that continues for so long to make repentance unwanted by the heart and therefore impossible in the story of Esau. Remember the story from Genesis where Esau traded his inheritance for a bowl of soup? And Hebrews 12 says this about Esau. Hebrews says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Listen to this. For you know that afterward... When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Okay, so this story in Hebrews about Esau is not saying that Esau repented and that God rejected him and refused to forgive him. God has never and will never withhold forgiveness from anyone who truly repents. Hebrews means when it says that Esau found no chance for repentance though he sought it with tears what that means is that Esau desired the good consequences of repentance he, he wanted to be forgiven he wanted a clean heart and a clean conscience he wanted to enjoy the benefits of repentance but he was not 
truly sorry. He did not truly repent. He felt guilty. He felt bad, but he did not truly desire repentance. His heart had been so hardened by his own sin and selfishness. He had fed his heart sin for so long that it completely lost its appetite and its desire for Christ. God would have forgiven Esau had Esau repented, but his heart had become so cold that his own heart didn't even desire to repent. So returning to Jesus' words here in Matthew 12, I think we can say that the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is a knowledgeable, willful, and continued rebellion against the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the point where you attribute the work and power of God to Satan. Now, something that I find interesting about Jesus' words here are his specification of the Holy Spirit in verse 32. It says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whatever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So our third question is, why is the unpardonable sin blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Why not against the Father or against the Son? Why, why would words against them not be considered equally as serious? And I think in order to answer that question, we need to understand some of the Trinitarian workings and responsibilities when it comes to salvation. So if you would, uh, go ahead and flip with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 1. It's just a few uh, books and letters to the right in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. And if you ever want to do a deep dive into how each member of the Trinity uh, relates to bringing salvation to us, God's creatures, then Ephesians 1 is where you want to go. And so just as as a quick overview of Ephesians 1, it first starts out by talking about the Father. And in verse 4, says that the Father, he has chosen his people from before the foundation of the world. That the Father desires that we be holy and blameless. And that the Father in love has predestined us for adoption. And then comes the key phrase, according to the purpose of his will. It is the Father who does the choosing and loving and adopting all of it according to the purpose of his will. So the picture that comes to mind is that in eternity past, the Father made the plan for our salvation. It's almost kind of like the director who is behind the scenes organizing and orchestrating everything. He's doing the 50,000 foot view of planning and orchestrating our salvation. Then he moves on to the next few verses, which goes from talking about the role of the father to moving on to talk about the role of the son. And in verse 7, it says that in him, speaking about the son now, in him, in Jesus... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And here we see that while the father planned the story of redemption and salvation back in an eternity past, it was the son who stepped into time and accomplished that salvation. He's the one who put on human flesh and lived and died in our place. His blood was spilled and it is his blood that bought our redemption. So... If you'll, you know, allow me, you know, one more really bad metaphor that doesn't really communicate the Trinity. It's like the father is the coach who drew up the play. And then the son went out onto the field or onto the court and carried out and accomplished the play. 
the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and then in verses 13 and 14 we read about the role of the Spirit. Verse 13, and you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here we see that it is the Spirit is the one who applies the salvation. It is the Spirit that breathes life. It is the Spirit that is the stamp and the marker of God's life, of Jesus' eternal life in you. So summarizing, the Father plans... The Son accomplishes and the Spirit applies salvation to our lives. So knowing that, I think we can answer now answer the question, why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and not the Father or the Son that puts one beyond the pale of repentance and forgiveness? And I think it's because of the unique role that the Spirit plays in bringing us to salvation. As one pastor put it, it is the Spirit's work to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, to grant repentance, and to make us beneficiaries of all that the Father has planned and all that Christ has accomplished for us. If we blaspheme and reject the Father and the Son, there is still hope, for the Spirit may yet work within us to humble us and bring us to repentance. But if after witnessing the work and power of the Father and the Son, we also taste and see the power of the Spirit and reject his work as no more precious than the work of Satan, then we shut ourselves off entirely from the only one who could ever bring us to repentance. And so we shut ourselves off from forgiveness. If I were to put it in my own words, I would say that the Holy Spirit is almost like the final leg of salvation. If you deny the Father, you can still be captured by the beauty of the Son. If you deny the Father and the Son, you can still be wooed by the Spirit. But if you deny the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, if you deny the work and the wooing of the Spirit, then there is no one left. There is no next opportunity. So why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit considered more heinous? It is not because the Spirit enjoys an elevated status over the Father and the Son. Each member of the Trinity is equal in honor and power and glory. But it is because of the unique role of the Spirit as the final leg, as the last opportunity of salvation, that a a denial of the Spirit's work will never be forgiven. Which leads us to question number four. Have I ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Am I guilty of committing this sin? And and I just, I want to be so careful here and I want to be so gentle here because I, I know of so many Christians who have lived in crippling and paralyzing fear that they have committed this sin because they took God's name in vain one time or because there is a sinful habit that they are really struggling with and they are afraid that they are too far gone and if you've ever been there wondering if did I just lose my salvation or have I done something that has made me so horrible that God will never love me, you know how exhausting and demoralizing that can be. And so to the person who has lost sleep and is terrified that perhaps they have committed this sin, I just want to say that the fact that you are concerned at all that perhaps you have is most likely 
an indication that you have not committed this sin. What Jesus is condemning is a prolonged, willful, and knowledgeable coldness of heart and rejection of who he is. Jesus is speaking to the person who has seen blind and crippled and mute and deaf people become healed. He is speaking to the, to the person who has seen dead people brought back to life. He is speaking to the person who sees miraculous and glorious works of God. And in response, they turn and they bow down to Satan. Jesus is condemning a truly perverse and abhorrent form of satanic worship. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And in Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. So in other words, Satan worshipers are not at all concerned about whether or not they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God. Cold, dead, unbelieving hearts are not worried about their standing before God because that is their nature. They are cold, hard, and indifferent. And so if you are even at all concerned about whether you have committed this sin, take that as an encouragement. Take that as a sign that the Spirit is working in you. As my pastor in Birmingham used to say, you want to know what dead things do? Not a thing. They're dead. So so if there is a struggle, if there is a worry, if there is a concern in your heart and in your soul, then take that struggle as a sign of life. Any movement, any conviction, any concern for the things of God is evidence of the Spirit's work in you. I think there is a reason that Just before this passage in Matthew 12 comes Isaiah's prophecy. Up in verse 20, Isaiah prophesies about Jesus and and had this to say about Jesus' dealings with struggling and weak and scared believers. He said, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Because Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. And he will deal tenderly with those who are struggling. So to those who are worried that they may have committed this unforgivable sin, take that worry as a sign of life. Your faith may be weak. It may be like a a flickering flame that is close to going out. But know that Jesus has called your name since before you were born. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your frame and your weaknesses and your doubts. And he will never turn his back on anyone who comes to him in broken repentance and faith. So lastly, our fifth and final question. How should we respond? There are so many ways to answer that question. I I can think of two. The first one, perhaps the most direct answer, would be to say that we need to increase our attentiveness to the working and wooing and conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Though it always hurts to deal with our sin and to have our sin exposed, it is God's grace to us to show us areas of our lives where we have misplaced 
our worship. It is God's kindness to send his spirit to bring us conviction and to prompt us to repentance. And so in response, as an act of obedience, we need to heed the spirit's leading in our lives and take sin seriously. This is warning us about the consequences of not taking sin seriously. When Jesus says that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better to you to enter life maimed than with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. I'm afraid that many of us, myself included, find the prospect of losing your own hand more offensive and gruesome than the prospect of entering into eternal torment and hell. And so we play with sin and we treat it like a pet. And we presume upon the riches of God's kindness and grace when we think that I can sin because God will forgive me anyway. What this passage is showing us is that a lifetime of that kind of thinking and presumption is the most dangerous gamble that you can ever make. A heart that plans to repent later probably never will. And there is a point after repeated, long-term, willful rejection of the Spirit's clear testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Spirit will cease His work in your life. And then left on your own without the work of the Spirit, you know, by your own nature, you will be unable to attribute to God what belongs to Him. And instead, you will credit someone else. And your heart will be beyond the point of repentance. And so to the increasingly cold and the increasingly hard hearts in the room, in in the words again of Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't plan on repenting later. You might not want to. So we need to take sin seriously and then the second way that we need to respond is we need to rest and rejoice in the truth that while Jesus will never forgive those who ultimately, who ultimately attribute his work and his power to Satan, that everyone else who turns to him in repentance and faith will be forgiven. We have spent all of our time on the scariest words in this passage, and so we need to end by looking at the kindness, kindest and most hopeful words. In verse 31, Jesus says that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Every single one. And that is good news because I know my own heart and I know that we are a sinful, messed up bunch. We are a group of sinners and every sin in the world is represented in this room and out on that patio. We are adulterers, we are murderers, idolaters, thieves, liars, deceivers, complainers, boasters, rebels, drunks, abusers. Name your sin. Name any sin, and it has been committed by us. And the good news is that Jesus came for those people. He came for those people who know that they are those people. And he says that every single sin under the sun will be forgiven for those who repent who turn from their sin and cast their faith and trust in him. So today, if you hear his voice, hear it as being sweeter than anything that this world has to offer you. Every sin over promises and under delivers. 
it will not satisfy and eventually it can corrupt your heart so much that you don't even desire Jesus at all. But if you do turn to him, he will love you, he will pour out his blood over you and he will forgive you and he will welcome you with open arms and your sin will be completely forgiven and you will be one of his own. So towards that end, let me pray for us. Jesus, though, though you have given us um, very serious and very sobering words, um, we thank you for those. It is your grace and kindness to us to give us warnings that can show us the reality of our sin and call us back from the brink And so, God, though it's not fun and though it's not easy, we know that there's nothing more important. And so we thank you that you have warned us. And so, Father, I just ask that by your spirit you would continue to work and woo everyone who is here. To those who do not believe in Jesus, that you would drop the scales from their eyes, show them the emptiness of everything that this world has to offer, show them the beauty and the fullness and the rest and peace that there is in Jesus. And for those who have tasted and seen that you are good, God, would you just continue to do it over and over again thousands of times a day? Show us that Jesus is better. Would you soften our hearts to the work of your spirit so that we can see and believe what is true? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.